Hello, and welcome to IRI Growth Insights C-Suite Conversations. I'm your host, John McIndoe, Chief Marketing Officer here at IRI. Our C-Suite Conversation series features notable industry leaders and luminaries talking about the future of CPG, retail, and media. In this very special episode, I'm here, and of course, safely socially distanced, with IRI's new president and CEO, Kirk Perry. Good morning, Kirk, and welcome to the IRI family. It's fantastic to have you here. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. It's great to be in Chicago. And I've been watching these for a year, so I'm a little nervous that I'm actually in front of the, the you know, the master interviewer. <laughs> no, no worries. This is going to be a lot of fun. And we're just, we're just delighted to have you here. So thanks for taking the time to do this. This is Kirk's fourth official day. So baptism by fire. So let's just dig right into it. Let, let's get, get cranking. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, your background. Um, you know, you have a unique combination of experience at the intersection of digital tech and CPG that really fits beautifully and perfectly with what we're trying to do here at IRI. And I'm curious, and I know a lot of our clients and employees are curious, you know, what was it about IRI that you felt was so compelling and made you decide to join us? It's a great question because I get this question quite often since the announcement's been made. But I think you hit on the first point, which is this intersection of my experience. You know, 23 and a half years at Procter, seven and a half years at Google. So, you know, I grew up as a marketer, as general manager, as an operating unit president, spent six years abroad in the tech industry, working with the largest advertisers in the world and advertising agencies. And so bringing those things together, this place is really the intersection of those two career experiences for me. So that was, that was one. I think the second thing for me is, you know, growing up as a marketer and then working in the digital industry for the last seven years, measurement is the holy grail of marketing. You know, it's the old adage that 50% of a marketer's dollars are wasted. You just don't know what 50%. And since I started, you know, a long time ago, it has been the perpetual holy grail, you know, trail to figure out, which is, hey, how do we make sure that every dollar spent drives a dollar or more in sales? And that's what I'm particularly interested in. I think, you know, IRI is uniquely poised to help make that happen. And so that is another thing that's very exciting to me. And the third thing, is as I got to know the company better because IRI was my first data provider when I was at P&G as a brand assistant uh, on the Crest brand way back when. And you know, for me, understanding what IRI has evolved into, which is this incredible tech company in a lot of ways, and the liquid data platform, which is the ability to really take you know, the customer data and put in you know, the client's data, the first party data, in whatever form they want with incredible flexibility, this liquid data platform, is a game changer and I was very intrigued by this unique platform that I think has incredible legs and longevity and so that was another reason why. So many more but you know and then the opportunity to meet the leadership team and to know what kind of organization we have that was also exciting because I think you do nothing without the organization and so you know without the team that has already had incredible results um, you know over the last five plus years I was just excited to be a part of that. Again, welcome. Kirk has, you, you know, you've been joking with me as a recovering marketer, but I couldn't be thrilled to have a, a kindred spirit here sitting, sitting with me. So um, before joining IRI, you know, obviously you were at a president of, of, of Google's global and advertising and agency solutions business um, since 2013. 
responsible for driving their global revenue and you know the world's largest advertisers and advertising agencies. So not a small job. You know, in that role, you were really instrumental in urging major global brands to shift their marketing dollars online. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a part of a, a major conversation that you were having in a time of really truly unprecedented change. Uh, given the changes that you've, you've witnessed and you're witnessing today in the media sectors and the role IRI plays in targeting these audiences, what opportunities do you see for, the, for us in that area? Yeah, so a couple things. One is, you know, you know I, I'm a pretty simple guy and I think a lot of times, you know, we in the marketing, CPG, digital world tend to make things more complicated than they need to be. You know, ultimately, the dollars that you spend should, you know, should reflect where the, you know, what I say, the consumer's eyeballs are, right? And so if a consumer spends 30% of their time on their mobile device and 20% of the time in front of a computer and 15% of the time in front of a TV, your share of spend should reflect where your consumer's eyeballs are, right? So it's, it's similar if I'm, you know, in my flashback to my P&G days, I would want my share of shelf to be equivalent to my share of the market, sure. right? Because that's the consumers that are buying. And so the, your share of spend should be equivalent to the share of eyeballs. And so, you know, that, my previous job at Google, you know, just making sure that was kind of the goal and focus was making sure we're where the consumer's eyeballs are and where their interest is. And so, you know, and you think about the pandemic over the last year, and what I say regularly is that nothing new really happened, things accelerated, right? So the industry talked a lot about things like e-commerce. And e-commerce is critically important, but the last year it's been essential to stay alive. You know, if you think about it, everything from restaurants to retailers, right? Everyone had to figure out how to do e-commerce, even auto players, for the first time when you didn't have a showroom open, how do you get a consumer to understand what it's like to test drive a car when you can't yes. drive a car? So pretty important. And so what happened is I think we had this significant acceleration of trends that were there already, but that became here today. You know, we, we couldn't wait five years to get things perfected. We had to figure it out right away. So if you take the where the consumer's eyeballs are, the fact that changes were accelerated today and where we sit with IRI, it's taking that data where you know consum what, what consumers have done and what I say the so, and the so what? What do you do with that? How do you use that to understand you know, the why of a consumer's purchase? Right. You know, where they purchased, what they did after that purchase, and you know, what I think as marketers we need to think about is over the last year, path to purchases haven't necessarily changed forever, but some things will have changed. And I think the next year, as we come through this, is gonna really be about having the best intelligence to understand those changes that are here to stay and those that were just because of the pandemic. And I think those marketers that are gonna get ahead are gonna utilize that data most effectively to reach consumers where they are in a way that motivates them and inspires them to purchase their brands. And so I, I really couldn't agree more. I, you've likely heard this through, it's been a central theme through a lot of these C-suite conversations and our viewers and listeners have heard this before, the way um, so many of these massive companies are reshaping decision-making and, and really acting with far more agility and speed and getting comfortable with how that, that process has been really kind of radically disrupted, um, certainly uniquely plays to how we're enabling them to power their growth. My hope is that some of that speed and agility in the way they act 
uh, to meet consumers' evolving needs in rapid fashion based on COVID really sticks because I think we've yeah. we've seen tremendous kind of breakthrough thinking and innovation as a result of that. So, and John, I think the the you know the one thing I'd kind of put a pin on that um, data and speed. You know, one of the things that I've been talking about since I got to Google, and it was a bit of a, a modified adage that I learned at PNG, which was the beauty of the pandemic was people tested a lot, like you experimented because you had to. You know, typically it's like, yeah, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't, because there was no burning platform. Right. If the house is on fire, you don't want to be mowing the lawn. House was on fire. Like, well, how do we get out there and do things that are going to matter to the business? And so you test a lot, you learn a lot, you fail fast, you fail cheap, and then you get back up and you do it again. And what I saw across the board was big advertisers who got much more aggressive on a learning plan, but it was fueled by data. And it was this beautiful do loop of, you know, sometimes, sometimes you swing big and connect, sometimes you don't, but then you get back up and you keep iterating this. And I think that's one of the things that I've been most encouraged by is this rapid cycle learning that I think, again, IRI can help power because you know data is at the core of that. And the more right. information you have and utilized effectively, the better you can go off and do these things that will enable your business to grow. Without question, I mean, brand managers across the globe who've had loyal shoppers, loyal brand, you know, brand followers for 25 years, all of a sudden unable to get a particular product and all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's new opportunities to try different brands. And so there was, you know, this tremendous opportunity to, to capture new customers that have been, had been locked into brands. And so it was kind of like a race to see who could capture that that basket and that chair, right. and then of course quickly catch up with supply chains. So, right. um, I, I agree. Um, so prior to Google, let's switch switch to your days at PNG. You spent more than two decades at PNG in leadership and marketing roles. Most recently, as president of PNG Global Family Care, where you oversaw operations across the globe. With that kind of international experience, tell us a little bit about your approach to global markets. So it's interesting. I, you know, when I joined Proctor uh, out of college, I had never been west of Chicago or east of New York. So if someone would have told me, you know, 20 some years ago or 30 years ago that I would spend six years of my life abroad, I would have laughed. But it was such an eye-opening experience for me because, you know, when I went, I didn't have a command of the language in Korea. Um, I had to rely on other people to translate for me what focus sure. groups yeah. were saying, you know, what was happening in a focus group or when I get a storyboard presented in Korean, I have to have somebody translate that back into English and you lose a little bit on that. And you know, when you have customer meetings and you're talking about selling of something, translator. So you know, I learned a lot about really listening um, deeply, which was you know, a first for me in a lot of ways because when I went in, it's like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I could figure this out. I tell this story um, because to me, it illustrates my approach to international markets and, and why I believe that you know you have to be there, but you have to have an ear for the local culture. I'd been there probably 30 days, and I started the same day as a guy named Iksup Shin. And Iksup was a US educated MBA, Korean national, literally started the first day I did. And so kind of learning, you know, I'm a marketing director and he's an assistant brand manager. And uh, one night it was a Thursday night and it was like 10.30. And he comes into my office and he shuts the door. He's like, you are killing us out there. I'm like. What are, you, what are you talking about? What do you mean I'm killing you? He, and, and in my mind, I'm like, did I say something? Did I do something? What's going on? And he said, um, he said, it's 10.30 at night and 
the, the whole marketing organization is here. And I get up and I look and I'm, he goes, what do you think they're doing? I go, I don't know, working? And he goes, no, in Korea, the culture is you don't leave until your boss leaves. So I go into ugly American mode. Like, what are you talking? That's so immature. Oh my God, they should leave. What? Is and and, he, and he, he didn't say this verbatim, but I've kind of translated it to this over the years. He said, you can't expect us to leave 5,000 years of genetically encrypted code at the front door every day. You know, don't expect us to be American. We won't expect you to be Korean. But let's meet in the middle and take the best of both. That was such like a transformational yeah. thought for me because I think a lot of times, at least for me, I went in, I thought, oh, I'll just transport what was successful in America to Korea because we know better. And the reality is, you know, as I tell people, they'll say, oh, what did you like better, Korea or Japan? Or how's that better than that? It's like, it's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. And I think as marketers, understanding that it's just different. And I had a boss at P&G named Deb Henretta, and she used to say, um, as common as possible, as different as necessary. And what that meant was, you know, a lot of times as companies, you think about, I got to scale everything the same. And the reality is there's nuanceical differences across, and you have to determine what is what should be immutable and incontrovertible that your brand stands for right. or your product is or whatever else that is critically important. And then what's unique to the local market that you need to, you know, you need to be unique on. And I think, you know, for me, as I look at the globe, it's like, how do you make sure that you scale where you can and tailor where you need, make sure you truly listen and understand the local culture and build and deliver things that are going to win. You know, it can't be just exporting something and, it'll sell. It's got to be yeah. tailored appropriately to that culture, or at least understanding the culture so you can build something that meets needs. It makes perfect sense. And, you know, four days being live and in person, I've heard you say probably 10 times, I've got two ears and one mouth. Yeah. Um, and that, that directly ties. And, I, you know, we've seen that as we've kind of looked at d different areas of, of operations here, really kind of truly understanding what's working, um, what makes them unique, what makes them, you know, excel, and trying to tailor strategies for that. Yeah. And that certainly is going to apply to what we're doing for our, for our valued clients as well. So yeah. talking a bit more broadly, how do you think your previous roles and experiences varied across the globe are going to inform your perspectives as CEO here at IRI? Yeah, well, like I talked about in the beginning, you know, the intersection, you know, we serve a diverse and significant CPG base, and in my, you know, my CPG roles, the interactions with the retail partners was pretty critical, right? Because very small percentage of CPG products are sold directly to consumer. You work right. with your retail partners to distribute and sell those products. So it was a very, very close partnership. So I think obviously, you know, I have that experience for quite a while. Um, the silver hair proves it. Um, and then in the tech world, I learned a significant amount. You know, I was a old dog learning new tricks when I. I moved to Google mid-career, and it was such an incredible eye-opening experience just how the digital and tech world works. And the one thing that, you know, I took away was, you know, P&G has been around 180 plus years. You know, Kimberly Clark's been around a long time. Unilever's been around a long time. Clorox's been around, like all these companies have been around a long time. Tech companies come and go. You know, I mean, how many of us owned Blackberries? Right. Like, I, I love asking in groups, like, every hand goes up and like, who owns one now? There's always one person. They're like, because I like the black, you know, I like the keyboard. Um, you know, Alta Vista, right? The first search engine. How many people have used that? Everybody used it. It's not around. Right. Netscape Navigator. Everybody used it. It was the first biggest browser. It's not around anymore. And so if you don't innovate, 
If you don't stay ahead, if you are not productively paranoid and make sure that you are innovating ahead of your competition and innovating for the needs of your partners, you're not going to be around. And so I think that marriage of the like how industries work in the CPG and retail world with the productive paranoia of the tech world and bringing those two things together, I think that's going to help me analyze the opportunities and the challenges that we have here um, to put together hopefully something along with the team, which has been phenomenal, uh, that we can take the growth that's already been here and add to it. So Kirk, appreciating that you are of course just on day number four here today, um, what do you hope to tackle first and, and with what goal in mind? This is like the ninth time I've gotten this question. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have said anybody that will listen to me, for the first 30 days, I'm going to listen and learn. I'm going to absorb sort of, you know, and I think hopefully in a structured way, but I, I'm starting with, you know, really understanding the history of the company because if you don't know where you've been, you're doomed to miss great opportunities or yeah. doomed to repeat your failures. So you got to understand the history. So I'm going to learn about where we've been. I want to learn about our strategies, our structure, our systems, and our culture. And so in 30 days, I'm then going to take the next 70 days to pull my you know, plans together for strategy and structure and systems and culture and build on what we've done really well, but then figure out what's going to skate us to the future. But importantly in all that mix is really connecting with our partners and clients to make sure that we are you know, hearing and listening to what their needs are because ultimately you know, we're here to serve, not to be served, right? I mean, our job is to help others well, that, yeah. deliver what they do best. And, you know, we're an enabler and we're a partner in that. And if we ever miss that, you know, then we're missing our mark. But that's, you know, that's what I want to do in the first 30 days. Nothing more complicated than that. But I can tell you the first four days, I, I haven't slept much. I mean, I have been, you know, fire hosing it all day. And then at night, I think the I'm mind processing, racing. processing everything that I'm learning that day. So <laughs> it's actually interesting. And and, and challenging, and I, I've now, you know, I started, when I was at P&G, I always envisioned I'd be there my entire career. And now that I've had two career changes over the last eight years, it's interesting how reinvigorating um, career changes are and how, you know, it focuses you in ways that I think, you know, it's, it's I've run a few marathons, and, you know, when, when you're in a marathon, you're very focused in the beginning, and you're really focused at the end. And in between, you kind of drift. And so it's like, because your mind, your body and everything else. Right. But I, I think it's a little bit like, you know, when you start up in something, it's like you're very focused. And then I think you kind of go, and you got to figure out a way to bring yourself back. And so I love this phase of really immersing, learning and understanding, you know, the opportunities ahead. Yeah. I know you're an avid traveler and it's like going to a new city or moving to a new town. Everything is new and exciting and there's so much opportunity for exploration. Yes, so for sure. So, yeah. So I, I, I hear you. You're obviously going to be interacting with a, a clients over the days, months, uh, you know, et cetera, and, and certainly our employees as well. I think one question that's probably on, on a lot of their minds is your leadership style. Yeah. Again, I'm not a very complicated guy, um, so I try to simplify things. And for me, my fundamental leadership principle is I'm here to serve the organization, not to be served by the organization. And I think one of the challenges as you rise in organizations is it's so easy to get fueled by the hierarchy and you know people want to take care of you and people want to yeah you know, I tell the story once when I was traveling I'm not going to say which company but you know someone um, one of my direct reports got bumped up 
you know, upgraded on a flight. And she was sitting, you know, and I, and I was boarding after her. <laughs> and she saw me walk by. She looked at me, and I go back and sit in my coach seat. And, and a few minutes later, I see her walk back with her, her briefcase. She's like, hey, why don't you go take my seat? I'm like, what? She goes, go, go take my seat. I'm like, why would I take your seat? Go, you earned that. I didn't earn it. Go sit down. But I just thought it was an interesting example of a lot of people like, oh, I got to take care of, you know, my, my leader. And, you know, as leaders, I, again, I'm not trying to oversimplify things, but I think our job is three things. One is strategic choices, what we will and will not do. Two is resource allocation. Where do we put our time, our talent, and our treasure? And the third one is barrier busting. You know, if you could do those three things well for the organization, you enable things to happen. Um, so you enable them to deliver what they need to deliver. I'm not a micromanager. You know, when I lead, I want to set clear expectations and help people get there. And, you know, I always assume that things will be done if I don't hear from people. So I don't want to get to the end point. It's like, oh, I, I'm not done. Like that, you know, in my mind, that's a missed expectation. And the other thing I think leadership is about being humble, authentic, and vulnerable. Like if, you know, it really be who you are all the time. Because if you're not, People see disingenuousness from a mile away. If you say right. one thing, if you do another, if you are, you know, if you um, talk behind people's backs, if you, you know, if you say like this is what I believe, but then your actions indicate something else, people don't feel as motivated or as trusting of you. And I think a lot of times people want to trust their leadership is making the right decisions. And if there's a sliver of doubt, you're not. You're not, not everyone's going to like you. This isn't about liking because there will always be a percentage of the organization, no matter what you do, Sure. that will say, oh, I don't really like a style. I don't really like this. And right. That's just human nature. And we're not perfect. We're humans. Right. We're people. Yeah. But what, what I want to have people do is respect. And respect comes from saying what you mean and meaning what you say, delivering what you promise. It means, you know, that you, when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And, and I think that's where respect is, is generated. So while some people may not like me, I want people to respect me. And it's because, you know, it's, it's who you are and what you do and the way you do it. As my yeah. wife always tells me, it's not what I say, it's how I say it. So I gotta right. be very careful about how I say it's things. about tone. I get coaching on tone <laughs> from time to time. The delivery. I get a lot of coaching <laughs> on that, actually. But we've talked about servant leadership and that extends not only to clients, but also to our employees. And yeah. so I think that, that approach around humility and, and honesty um, it is not, you know, honesty and integrity is not uh, the best policy. It is the only policy. Correct. So um, I, 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 I can appreciate that. You've talked about purposeful work, mm. Kirk. Tell me more about how you approach your purpose and how that's evolved and changed throughout your, your career. When I first started my career, obviously, your head's down. I had someone tell me, Named Les Overway at PNG. I was there three or four months. He said, "Work hard now, work smart later." And you know, it was like head down. You know, as hard as I could work, six days a week. You know, and I was an undergrad, state school, in this incredible lexicon of educated, you know, MBAs at Proctor. And so I had to work harder. And so it was it was very individualistic. But I think as you know, I started to get promoted and led people. I realized it was more you know, obviously more than me, and I had to figure out like, hey, what, how do I help them achieve, you know, what they want to achieve? Because as I think back on my career, it's 31 years now, I, I honestly don't remember, I, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but I don't remember a lot of years, like, did I blow the number away? Did I, I always delivered, but I don't remember the numbers, but I remember the people. I remember the moments, the 
personal moments, the professional moments where people achieve things they didn't think they could achieve. And so I think over time what I started to think about was, hey, is, I think my purpose as a leader is to help people achieve you know, their dreams you know, professionally or personally. I've had people who I've written recommendations for who work for me to go get an MBA or to go become a teacher or whatever their dream in life happened to be. Other people had a dream and aspiration to do something within the company I was working for and yeah. get them promoted because we put them in a crucible role and coach them and built them up. You know, other people wanted to leave the company and start their own thing and help them do that. And so it's really about helping bring out the best in people. Like that, that to me has been, you know, the best part of my, of my leadership journey in my career. And, you know, I, I had somebody tell me once, live a eulogy-led life, not a resume-led life. And, you know, it took me a while to understand what that meant. But, it, you know, to me, it really means like conventional wisdom says, hey, build your resume, Focus put these on things you. on there, you know. But yeah. really, when you think about it, like, you know, you're, you know what, what do you want your, your eulogy to say? Yeah. And what do you want people to say about you? This isn't going to be about what, a, you know, you delivered well or you signed that deal or you nailed this test. It's going to be about your relationships. It's going to be how did you help others? Did you make an impact? beyond yourself. And I think that, you know, that was great wisdom and I hopefully, not as well as I should all the time, but hopefully, you know, that's how I've tried to live out my career as a leader. Well, we're all works in progress. Cer certainly, you know, my greatest my greatest joy um, is as a leader is giving people opportunities and coaching them and mentoring them and seeing them succeed and seeing that joy when they thought they couldn't achieve what they wanted to achieve and then you know, through hard work and diligence and, and focus, seeing them realize their dreams, uh, you know, things that they thought were totally impossible. Yeah. You know, so. You know, I, 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 my 16-year-old right now, you know, he's going through this growth phase and he's a football player, his older brother plays college football. And so he was out bench pressing the other night and he put 225 on for the first time and, you know, it's two 45-pound plates and he's fighting it up and I've got two fingers up and I'm like, push it, man, push it, come on, come on, I'm barely helping him and he got it up. He's like, oh, you gave me a lot of help. I'm like, I barely touched the bar. In a lot of ways in leadership, that's what you're doing, you're barely touching the bar. You're just giving yeah. someone a little comfort that you're there. It's right there. And they've just gotta keep pushing and get it up on their own. I didn't grab it and pull it up. A lot of times leaders, you wanna grab the bar and pull it up. Just gotta give a little help, just give them a little help, a little guidance and they'll get it on their own. And that's, I think, you know, the fine art of leadership is figuring out how much pressure do you put on that bar? And that certainly applies to what we're doing for clients today. Yeah. You know, we're helping them push disruptive thinking and helping them challenge their conventional wisdom. Yep. So, I mean, I think that certainly applies to the role we play in our industry um, in raising the bar and also helping helping clients every day. Yep. You know, for tackle sure. these what we think are insurmountable problems piece by piece. You know, you talk about making the the really complex simple. So, I think that that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Um, you've talked about how no company succeeds in the long term, really without every person feeling that they can belong and make an impact. Mm. Um, in the past year here at IRI, we've worked hard to develop um, ERGs, employee resource groups, and really elevate our focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you tell me about your philosophy and how that supports these efforts? Yeah. So you you know, our job as leaders in any company is to create an environment where each person can bring the very best version of themselves to work every day. Each person, not some people 
some of the time, others some of the time, but all the people all the time. And you know, it starts with, are we reflective of the society we live in? Are we reflective of our customer base? Are we reflective of our consumer base? You know, and how do you make that happen? You bring people in and you keep people there, right? And so if you don't have the right philosophies and beliefs, because I've worked, you know, some of the, I mentioned this to our teams yesterday, you know, the best leadership teams I've ever had have been the most diverse. When I was in Japan as a general manager, I had nine different nationalities on my 11 direct report leadership team. And it, w- and it was pretty evenly split male, female. The diversity of thinking that came from that type of organization delivered incredible results and an incredible turnaround. And that was proof positive to me that the more people bring to the table from different vantage points, the better you are at solving problems. And it's hard work. It's hard work to get the right people in the door because our inherent biases, our unconscious biases, are to bring people in that look like us, that think like us, that act like us, and you gotta bring people in who are gonna make you better. You know, if I wanted to surround myself with people that just told me how great I was or what great decisions I was, I was making, we would do this, right? You want people to say, that's really a bad idea, or what about this, have you thought about this way? Or in my experience, in the previous company I worked at, or this is what I saw, all of that helps make us better. So, you know, I just came from Google, and I, I mean, the thing I would tell you is Google recognized the opportunity and the issue that we had in the tech industry for diversity, you know, both uh, gender diversity, racial diversity uh, in particular, and, you know, systems that we were trying to put in place. Like one of the things I did with my team is I asked my leaders, let me see the slates of the people that you're going to be interviewing. Is it a diverse slate? What kind of experience base do they have? Where are they from? How do they think? But really making sure we stopped before we hired. And then once we got people in, how do you develop them and coach them in a way that's appropriate? When I was at Proctor, we had something called Paris training, where if you had an underrepresented group direct report, you went off site for three days and it was incredible. You opened up, you understood things, but it allowed you, because I think unless you really understand a person, it's hard to lead them. Like unless you really understand where they've come from or how they operate, it's really hard to lead. And that, that's just not underrepresented groups, that's anybody. So the more we can peel the onion back on individuals and understand who they are, then the better off we're gonna be able to lead them. And so I, it, it is fundamental to how we're gonna work here. It's, and you guys have already made tremendous progress, but we're gonna continue to build on that because we have a lot of opportunity, I think, to continue to build a really diverse organization that's reflective of the society at large, but also our customers and you know, our consumers. Love it, love it. In addition to your vast CPG experience at P&G, you also serve on, on two boards, one in the cosmetic space, one for a, a major food manufacturer. What do you think is mission critical for IRI, CPG, and retail clients today in today's environment? I mean, things have have been so upended, upended and um, we've seen tremendous resiliency, innovation, and really breakthrough thinking. Um, you know, what do you think they should be thinking about next? Yeah, so again, I talked about this in the beginning. The pace of change dramatically accelerated, right? You had to test, learn, test and learn more. But it's a little bit like sports. Um, the companies that came through this the best hunkered down and focused on the fundamentals. Like, you got the fundamentals right, right? You made sure safety was the number one priority. You made sure you could produce the SKUs that were most critical to your consumers. You made sure that, you know, the distribution 
was set up. You made sure that your procurement was set up so you could get hard to get supplies right. because you knew things were gonna be short, right? So the fundamentals, like if you did not focus on the fundamentals, like right now, look what's happening in the auto industry, right? There's no chips. They're making cars, parking them, because they don't have chips that power, the microchips that power most of the systems on a car. A few of the manufacturers saw this coming and they pre-ordered you know, boatloads literally of chips and they're producing cars. But some that weren't as focused on the fundamentals are struggling a little bit more right now, right? So it's that focus on the fun fundamentals. The second thing is really thinking about like, hey, what are the innovative things that we need to continue to do to stay ahead? Because if you just rest on your laurels, head down, focus on the fundamentals, you're not going to get those breakthroughs. They're going to be those things that will continue to be, you know, call it the S-curve, right? So you want to continue to be on the S-curves. And I think, again, you step back. It's companies like Apple. You know, Apple continues to focus on the fundamentals but innovates in their marketing and their product mix. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's an example. And plenty of our partners in the CPG industry and the retail industry in general, I mean, if you think about what, um, what some of the bigger players have done as far as e-commerce, in, in the last year, you know, how, what they have done as far as assortment, what they have done just in general to make the shopping experience safer and easier to keep their employees safe. I mean, all of those things were about innovations on the fly, but that's gonna have to continue to happen. So how do you find that sweet spot yeah. going forward of fundamentals and innovation? You know, I, I really honestly don't think that there's been a, a more exciting time to be um, in CPG and retail at this time. I mean, there's so much opportunity, so much opportunity for disruption and change and innovative thinking. You know, in parallel with what consumers are doing, they're certainly driving the bus, um, but, but this opportunity to really kind of reshape these traditional models is, is really exciting. And I, I think that we can serve a really unique purpose from that perspective, yeah, so. For sure. Um, let's close things off with a quick, you know, a lightning round. Lightning away. All right, lightning away. San Francisco Giants or Cincinnati Reds? Cincinnati Reds. Okay. Cincinnati, home of the cornhole, known as bags in other Midwest cities. <laughs> Do you consider yourself a corn star? No. No. I'm terrible at it. So we should not be hosting IRI to team building cornaments? <laughs> uh, no. No. We, we shouldn't because okay. that would be terrible. But thank right. you for asking. <laughs> Chicago question on the minds of our Chicago-based employees for sure. Deep dish or thin crust? Thin crust. Thin crust. Favorite podcast and uh, or TED Talk? Ooh, uh, Brene Brown, Humility, TED Talk. Um, or uh, Yeah, Authenticity, TED Talk. Um, favorite podcast right now, uh, two of them. One is Buddy of Mine, Aggressive Life by Brian Tome. Second one is Huberman Labs. He's a neurobiologist and a ophthalmologist from Stanford. Super fascinating. Cool. Kind of nerdy, but super fascinating. And then final one, favorite place you've ever visited? Wow, that's a hard one because I've had so many cool things. I mean, for historical reasons, I, I loved going to, to China, like just the history in China. Uh, I love London. Um, Bali is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in the world. But my favorite place on the face of the earth is Hawaii. I just love Hawaii. Okay. Yeah. I feel you. Thank you, Kirk, for your candor, your wisdom, and perspective. I really enjoyed this conversation today. Certainly exciting times ahead with you at the helm. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it. For our listeners and viewers, this recorded conversation will be available on our website at iriworldwide.com. 
We hope you'll take an opportunity to review our other thought leadership resources, including invaluable reports and our dashboards of real-time economic indicators and forward-looking insights. Thank you for joining us today. Be well and be safe.